When your baby is born, you can't help but love it, right? Turns out this isn't always the case. Most people have heard of the post-baby blues, but postnatal depression can affect up to 1 in 7 women after childbirth. Unlike the baby blues, this isn't something that goes away on its own relatively quickly. It can last for many weeks or months. Postnatal depression can affect any woman women with easy pregnancies or problem pregnancies, first-time mothers and mothers with one or more children, women who are married, women who are not, and regardless of income, age, race, ethnicity, culture, or education. This is the Uncomfortable is OK podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. Today's guest is Mega Jolly, who I'd like to thank for reaching out to me to chat about this topic. Mega shares her own journey with postnatal depression and is pretty vulnerable uh, in our chat. She opens up about this topic that no one really seems to speak about and for such a common problem you'd think there'd be a lot more conversation about this. I don't really know what causes this lack of discussion. Perhaps it could be the stories that we tell ourselves about what others will think if we admit having a problem. Perhaps we think that if we deny it then it'll all just go away. Or perhaps it's something completely different. I do know that this is a topic we need to talk about and reduce some of the stigma around it. So thanks Mega for making me a little uncomfortable with this conversation today. And if this is something that you or someone you know is struggling with, then one of the best things you can do is to talk about it. After having this chat, I've done a bit of a Google search and found some resources that you can go to if you want more information or support and included them in the notes for the show. So I ask you guys to help get this conversation going and share Mega's story out. Hopefully it'll end up helping someone that you love. Before we start... I just want to take a second as well to mention all those people that have been affected by the earthquakes in New Zealand in the last day or so. My thoughts are with you. I hope you're healthy and safe. And feel free to reach out if I can help in any way. Thanks guys for taking the time to get uncomfortable with me and Mega today. Hey Mega, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Thanks for uh, spending a little bit of time with me today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. It's good to uh, have a bit of a chance to connect. We had a, well, we've been exchanging messages for uh, a month or so, but I've uh, been a little bit snowed under with um, how much I've had to do with the Masters, but now I'm nice and relaxed. It's good to actually start recording a, a few of these again. So Mega, can you let the, the listeners know a little bit about yourself uh, and a bit about your background? Um, so I'm from Wellington, 
you and I, we used to work together back at Wellington Hospital um, as physios. So um, I studied at at the University of Otago, graduated in 2009, worked for a couple of years at Wellington Hospital, um, went overseas for a little bit and then came over to Brisbane, had a baby, went back to work and I'm working as a physio at um, one of the big hospitals in Brisbane on the north side. Yeah, so that's basically me. It's me and my son at the moment. So, yeah. Cool. How old's your son now? He is three. Awesome. Just turned three a couple of weeks ago, a few oh, weeks ago now. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, nice wee birthday party for him. Yeah, we had a very cool birthday party and I made an awesome cake for him, if I do say so myself. <laughs> uh, nice work. Nice work. I'm sure he enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and actually, I have recorded a few conversations with uh, people that I know through mm. physiotherapy uh, yeah. lately, um, yeah. but today we're not actually here to talk about physiotherapy. Uh, we're going to have probably a little bit more of a chat kind of closer to the topic of your son, actually, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and about uh, postnatal depression as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. which is something uh, that you unfortunately suffered from. Yeah. Yeah. Can you kind of let me know and let our listeners know kind of a little bit about the kind of lead into that because it's not a topic that I'm very familiar with. Yeah, and I think it's a topic that not many people, no one's really familiar with unless you've been through it. And the reason why I approached or I told you about it was because I was like, when you're pregnant, no one really opens up to you that that's a real possibility. I know that when I had my midwife appointments and things, they or after I gave birth, they said, "Oh, if you're feeling a bit down and you know you could you could be suffering postnatal depression, call this number or talk to your GP." But I, it's not really an open conversation that you have with your friends or people around you um and so it i mean it's an uncomfortable to- topic to talk about so i thought i f- i felt like that was something that needs to be spoken about to a larger audience because no one does talk about it and then women experience the blues the post baby blues and they think that something's wrong with them or, you know, it's just normal. But then you come out of it and you look back and you go, holy moly, I was so down. <laughs> it was so bad. And if you'd have gotten help earlier or if you'd gotten help at all, then it, it wouldn't have been as bad. But it's just no one talks about it. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, it's... From doing a little bit of uh, Google-based research, it seems that it's it's pretty prevalent. So, kind of on the, the the numbers they suggested, kind of on the low end was about kind of five percent, and on yeah. the high end, up to about sixty percent of of women do suffer from it. So, really, it is a topic that we should be talking about a lot more, and yeah, kind yeah. of bringing bringing to light because I can imagine that it's a, a pretty massive struggle to go through yeah it is I mean even if I reached one woman to you know who's listens to this podcast who can say oh my god like I think I need to reach out to someone today then that'll make me happy (laughs) yeah that'd that'd be cool 
um yeah yeah, and if anyone is listening and uh mega's story resonates with you then kind of definitely get in touch with us and and let us know yeah definitely because yeah as i say or as you say it's so prevalent and i think even 60 percent may be a bit low okay yeah i think more women like yeah i just no one talks about it people just brush it off i i brushed it off i really brushed it off i didn't tell anyone i didn't say anything i just you know so i people like me aren't part of the statistics you know so mega how did it start i guess if we're going to take it all the way back to the beginning um first of all i think part of what led to my postnatal depression was the fact that I did have an unplanned pregnancy. And I'm not saying that people who have unplanned pregnancies all go on to have postnatal depression or people who have planned pregnancies don't have postnatal depression. PND doesn't discriminate. But I think that for me was a bit of a catalyst. It was all like we had weren't really settled in one place. We were overseas. We came in to Brisbane and we I didn't have a network of friends and I had my family there but Sometimes you just need some close girlfriends and everything. So you, I didn't have friends. I wasn't really enjoying my job. I was working while I was pregnant and I didn't enjoy my job. You know, you're just going through the motions of life, getting through each day. And then I had my baby. I had Oscar. And I just did not connect with him. I remember as as they put him on my chest, the first time I saw him, I did not experience the the singing angels and the ray of sunshine that people tell you that they experience I definitely experienced a moment of awe that oh my god I've made this baby I've made this human and for a few seconds you're just like there's you're completely present to the moment but that passed after a few seconds (laughs) um and yeah I just did not experience that love that shower of love that women talk about and I was like what's wrong with me and then um a few things happened after the birth so he needed to go into special care unit a couple like pretty much as soon as he was born because he had a bit of trouble breathing so I wasn't with him for the first one or two days he was down in the crib and he was fine, like, you know, they were just monitoring him and everything. But I think that maybe that also led to a bit of disconnectedness from him, not being in close proximity with him. And then, and then of course, you, you stop sleeping because you have to breastfeed or pump or whatever. And then you, you're just not, um, you're not with it because you're completely sleep deprived. And so for me, like the, the love, there was no love to keep me going. Do you know what I mean? So, and I was, and I, when I held him and he came into my room because we were in hospital for five days or so while they were monitoring him and he, he came into my room after the first couple of days and I was like, oh, I'm so tired and you're this little beautiful human being but man, I just want to sleep. <laughs> and I just didn't have that love to keep me going, like just get it done, you know, like breastfeed, change nappies, all of that sort of stuff. I was just like, 
I don't know. And then we went home, and again, I was I was just kept getting more and more tired because obviously you can't sleep when you've got a newborn. Um, you're up every three hours to feed him, and I and I remember the days would just go go by, and um, it would be three o'clock, and I'd be like, "What have I done today?" I've not achieved anything. And I remember thinking, you're this little, little person and I don't even know you and I have to do all this work for you. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm sacrificing my sleep and any sort of, like my life is about you. And yeah, I don't know. I just had, I did not connect with my son. And honestly, it took me about almost two years to really connect with him. But yeah, I, I was probably depressed for the first, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. It's pretty pretty powerful stuff. How did that make you feel as a new mother? Because obviously I would imagine that those feelings are quite different to what you expected to happen. I felt horrible. I was like, I'm just this monster, like who doesn't love her son. You know, I could quite happily give him to my mum for the day or, you know, for the afternoon to babysit. I could just go off shopping and, but I, felt, I was like, this, that's not right. Like, what's wrong with me? I just, yeah, I felt horrible. And I, yeah, I didn't feel like I was good. And, you know, you'd hear like my mum, because you form a mother's group, they put you in a group after you've had a baby and you meet up for sessions, you know, talk about feeding and, all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, the woman in my mother's group would be like, oh, you know, my husband told me to go and get my nails done and and I went and I felt so horrible being away from my baby for an hour and a half. And I was like, I just went for a a massage yesterday and I did not feel horrible (laughs) for leaving him for a couple of hours. So, yeah, I just felt like I was horrible. Were you were you able to open up about that at all to your mother's group? No, I couldn't because everyone was saying how much they couldn't leave their babies and how much they loved their babies and all of this, that and the other. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love my baby so much too. Yeah. yeah. I definitely couldn't, didn't feel comfortable. And I know now because I've talked to them now and none of them would have judged me. Um, if I had opened up back then, mm. but I just didn't feel comfortable doing it because I, I guess I judged myself. Yeah. Talking to them now, actually, have any of them kind of come and told you, actually, there were times that I felt like you did as well? Yeah. That yeah. they were just kind of putting on a front for the group? Um, not necessarily putting on a front, but... Um, a lot of them, most of them have said, you know, or a few of them have said, like, oh, God, um, I just, especially with the ones who had, who have already had their second child, I find that when they, because a lot of them had their second child with before their first one turned two. So a lot of them had the same problems I had with Oscar with their second one, if that makes sense. So a lot of them had that, like, oh, you know, like love and everything for the first one. But then they said, you know, like I couldn't connect with my son, my second child for over a year because I felt like he came into my life and he disrupted my connection and my relationship with my elders. Yeah. So, and then another one has said that, yeah, she did feel like me with her first child or with, she's also only got the one 
and that she said I could have just like I loved her but I at the same time she was just another baby like she could have been anyone's baby I just felt like I had to do what I had to do for her but it wasn't like that real passionate motherly love that we all experience now but didn't have it back then (laughs) it's interesting kind of how we put on a front to kind of project the image that we think society expects of us yeah um and i'm not sure i think it's just kind of social conditioning yeah um, but also partially as you said before because we don't actually talk about this topic that a lot of people don't understand it and like yourself don't understand kind of how prevalent it is in society mm. before you actually go through it and then start looking at it more. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, yeah, not really any education kind of no. just after the birth about, hey, this is normal to feel like this. It's the, oh, yeah, you'll be right, love. If you're, yeah. if you're feeling a bit down, then give this number a call. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Potentially there needs to be a little bit more education yeah exactly and um i think that as human beings we make up these stories in our head about how other people are going to react to what we tell them so i definitely made up stories in my head that if i tell these women that i don't love my son that much and i could happily go and get my nails done and leave him with my mum for a couple of hours and not really miss him that much, I made up a story in my head that they're going to think I'm a monster and they're going to be like, oh, oh, get her out of the group kind of thing, you know, and that wouldn't have happened. I can see that now, but we just make up stories in our head. We preconceive what other people are going to say and do and Mm. they're just stories. Yeah, and it's often really uncomfortable kind of battling against those stories that we tell ourselves. Exactly. Um, did you talk to anyone about it? No, I never talked to anyone. I only spoke about it after I, the fog lifted, really, which I, sh- you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I definitely should have gone to the GP. I should have seen a psychologist. Um, I should have talked to my family. I should have talked to more anyone anyone I should talk to but I didn't because I was like I guess going back to um we try and do what society expects us to do and I was just I felt that society expected me to be this mum who loves her child and who is doting on her son and everything and everything's peachy and roses and so I was like well I'm just going to put up that front and do that because that's what society expects me to do and I was uncomfortable to approach anyone about it. Because you thought that they would judge you? Uh, yeah, I thought that they would judge me. I thought, I, and then I thought, oh, no, I'm not really going. Like, I, this isn't really happening. Like, you know, I, I was in a lot of denial, to be honest. Even though I knew I didn't love my son, I was like, no, it's it's fine. Like, I, I just managed to deny it. I really denied it. I don't know how to put it into words, but I just felt like I couldn't talk to anyone and mm. I didn't want to. I pretended it wasn't there. Yeah. Even deep down I knew that something was wrong. So if you didn't talk to anyone about it, how did you get through it? How did you kind of get past it? 
It was literally just a time thing and just, I guess, getting to know my son more, like obviously spending time raising him, seeing how he grew. Um, And I think a lot of it is obviously hormonal and chemical, like all the chemicals running through your body, all the hormones, they obviously settled down after that time. But it was a lot of it, I think, was, yeah, just seeing how much of a beautiful boy I was raising and just being able to watch him grow and do all of these cool things. And then, you know, now I'm just like, oh, my God, like he's just the best person ever. Like I know I'm being biased, (laughs) but I'm like, he is definitely the best human in the world. And I realise that every parent says that or feels that about their child. But, you know, um, I guess it's just connecting more over time with your child as you raise them. That helps to to lift it and then the hormones settling down. So, I mean, it sounds like you have have a fantastic relationship with him now. Yeah, he's great. He's just so bubbly and smart and clever and funny and just yeah I honestly I couldn't have asked for a better child he sleeps well (laughs) (laughs) which is a big plus in my books but I think um also going back to why how it sort of lifted I think another part of it was as he got older I was able to take him to the gym with me so obviously I could do more exercise and exercise is a natural antidepressant and everything like that so I think that was a big part of it as well I felt like I could get back to my normal routine of going to the gym and I could take him with me and he could be a part of that so that really yeah helped um, things along and who have you spoken to about this since the the depression lifted or the fog lifted Um, I think I talk to everyone about it. (laughs) Like anyone who's pregnant, I'm like, I I try not to say it in a patronizing way or a um, you're definitely going to experience it kind of way or it's all doom and gloom. I'm just, I guess I try and share my experience so that if they experience any of those things that I did, then they can go, well, at least I'm there for them to reach out to and then I can potentially um, guide them on the next steps and let them know that it's okay to reach out to professionals if they need it. Um, I've spoken to all my mother's group about it and, yeah, every pretty much all of them have experienced it in some form of the, or the other, um, either with their first or their second. I've spoken to my family about it, like, yeah. A lot of people. I haven't spoken to a psychologist about it. I haven't seen one, but I don't feel the need to see one anymore because I'm not depressed about it. I mean, you know, like I don't have the postnatal depression or anything. So, Mm. How did your family respond when you told them? Uh, You know what? It's they (laughs) – because I'm Indian, our culture kind of just brushes it all under the covers. (laughs) So they weren't like – they weren't they didn't um brush it off but they weren't like oh it's you know it's okay or well they kind of were but they weren't as open about it but they definitely didn't fob me off they it's just i think it's just a cultural thing Mm. probably did the best they they responded in the best way they could given the cultural differences Mm. i guess my mum was like yeah well we're here for you whenever you need it you know 
don't worry, things will be things will like if anything ever goes bad, we're always here for you. That sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah. So no one actually responded in the way that you thought with the stories that you were telling yourself initially. No, not at all. They all responded amazingly. Um, you know, no one judged me. No one said, "Oh, that's you're a horrible person." No one said that. Everyone was empathetic towards me um, or towards my experience. Um, yeah, no one acted in the way that I made out in my head. So, funnily enough, I could have <laughs> reached out earlier. <laughs> yeah. Besides yeah. the the disconnect that you felt from your your son, did you have any other symptoms as well? I could just cry off the top, you know, I could cry at anything. I could I was I could be angry about anything. You know, I had a lot of my partner at, at the time and I or Oscar's dad we had a few problems, you know, so that I guess that was excess or my, I don't know if my, the problems exacerbated the PND or the PND exacerbated the problems that we have, who knows. But yeah, we fought a lot and everything. So, oh wait, what was the question again? I felt like I just <laughs> No, I think you, I think you got most of it. It was what were the other symptoms oh, that you had at the time? Um, yeah, so it was a lot of, I was just angry, sad. I just didn't want to talk to people much. I didn't want to go out. I didn't, like, I, I didn't really connect with my mother's group as much in the first year of life. Or well, first 18 months of Oscar's life, I didn't really connect with them. It was only after, like, after the postnatal depression lifted that I really um, reconnected with them I mean I kept in contact with them via Facebook and stuff because we have a little group going and I occasionally went to some events but I didn't I tried to avoid being around people I avoided people and I think that was a little bit of saying I don't deserve to be around all these other mums who love their children when I don't love mine I yeah. think yeah you didn't feel that you kind of stacked up to kind of what yeah. you were supposed to be as yeah, a mum. Exactly. Yeah. Felt like I was less of a mum. Yeah, that must be pretty pretty tough. Yeah, it was. It was back then. I really it really made me feel like I wasn't a good mother and but now I guess I can look at myself and I'm like, I'm an awesome mum. I I'm so good at this role. <laughs> And I love it. Yeah. So. Cool. And if it happened again, yeah. How would you approach it with with this as with this experience? Oh, I'd reach out to my partner, I'd reach out to my friends and family, I'd reach out to health professionals. Just speaking to people even just helps to put things into perspective for you because you you make up, as I said, you make up all the stories in your head about anything and then it's exacerbated by the depression and if you are speaking to someone, they can put things into a much better perspective for you um, and you can open up, you can, people can tell you, no, it's okay, it's okay, you know, and then you can, yeah, you can go through strategies with a, a psychologist or a counsellor to deal with it. So, yeah, I'd just talk and talk and talk to as many people as I could. Have you found any good resources since you came out of the depression that you can uh, that you would point people towards 
if they were suffering from PND? No, I haven't come across anything specific to PND, but I recently I've read through a book called The Mindful Mother, and it's um, called A Practical and Spiritual Guide to Enjoying Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond with Mindfulness. It's by Naomi Chunilal. Yeah, it just sort of helps you. It sort of teaches you, goes through mindfulness as a mum, I guess, because life is just so hectic when you're a full-time working mum that you need that time to just zone out and not just zone out with exercise. You need like physical exercise, you need that sort of zoning out exercise for your mind. So I found that book quite nice to read. Um, it's a bit, it's long, but definitely give it a go. As I said, it's not specific to P&D, but I definitely think that being more mindful um, or practicing mindfulness and meditation can help with some aspects of depression, any kind of depression really. Yeah, and there's, I think there's a lot of research coming out around that at the moment as well as how, how beneficial it is, uh, yeah. mindfulness and, and meditation um, yeah. for a range of things, not just yeah. depression. Even, um, I mean, one of the, the strategies, and they, I think that they kind of do tell you um, in a lot of parenting resources, but... You know, sometimes your kids push your buttons and that's just the nature of children and you just want to lose it and yell at them all. But to be able to step aside and just take 10 deep, slow breaths is so helpful. <laughs> just to calm the body, reduce the stress, calm, like lower the heart rate so that you can just think a bit more rationally before you go off at your children. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deciding whether this is actually worth going off at them over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, toddlers can be a bit of a handful. Um, and I know, like, all of my mum friends, they say, oh, God, sometimes I just I feel like I've just turned into this woman who just yells at their child all the time. And it's easy to do, but it's also just as easy to step aside and just calm down for a minute before you react. So... And I, I don't mean that in a patronizing way. It's You've got the choice, right? And I know it's easy to react harshly, but it's also, and it does take a lot of effort to go, hold on, stop, I'm just going to take a breather for a minute. It yeah. is hard to do that. But if you can get into the habit of that, it's so worth it. Right? Yeah. I think that's a, a cool philosophy for life in general, actually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, take a minute before you react to anything. I could, I should probably apply that to more life situations. <laughs> uh, it's always a practice, Mega. It's always yeah. a practice. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, another thing that I felt helped me overcome my depression was, so after Oscar was born, I started working not long after he was born at an aged care facility or nursing home. And it was basically a really mindless job. I was, it was just to get in some money and I hated it. I hated going to work every day. Like it was horrible. And so when you're going to work and you're depressed, like that's just not a good, that's, that's never going to be a good mixture, right? So, um, and I was only working three and a half days at this job 
and I thought, okay, I can't keep doing this because it's driving me crazy. So what I decided to do is I went for a locum position at the local hospital, um, which was a big risk because I went from a stable job to a three-month locum, <laughs> and it was going to be full-time as well. So um, I went from part-time as well to full-time. But, my God, the, I'm so glad I did it. I was uncomfortable doing so because I was like, oh, God. I, don't, I, I didn't even know how much I was going to get paid. I thought I was taking a, I was going to go down in pay, <laughs> to be honest, but I just hated this job so much that I was like, I, I just need to get out of it. But I'm so glad I did, and I, I'm so glad I pushed the boundaries or got out of my comfort zone because my job was so much more fulfilling and I was so much happier doing that you know, working at the hospital as opposed to this nursing home where I wasn't really getting to use my brain and doing anything fulfilling for me. So going from one extreme to the other, going to a really rewarding job, fulfilling lots of workmates, making lots of new friends and stuff, that also helped me come out of the depression. So kind of giving giving you a little bit more purpose really. Yeah, just day-to-day purpose, I think. is, And I think um, for anyone who's suffering any sort of depression, having something, a purpose each day is going to help you get out of bed in the morning because often that's one of the um, people say, like, I just don't want to get out of bed, you know, when you're depressed. And if you've got something awesome to go to, a job, an awesome job to go to, well, that's half of well, not half of it, but, you know, that's part of it that you're dealing with, the getting out of bed aspect and being excited to go to work. Mega, I want to ask you a few questions that we ask everybody towards the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one yeah. is, can you tell me about a time that you failed, in parentheses, and what you learned from it? Oh, my God. Um, okay, this is my okay this is probably a story I'm telling myself but anyway I felt that I failed at breastfeeding you get this message from everyone breast is best breast is best breast is best breast is best and I hated it I absolutely hated breastfeeding and I felt like a monster for hating it I really did because people are like oh well you know mum's should be sacrificing everything to give their child the best start at life and everything. But I made the decision at 12 weeks to stop breastfeeding. And to me, that was a failure. But in saying that, I went on to formula and my baby was so much happier. My baby started gaining weight. My baby started sleeping more. And then I was like, well, actually, one thing you got to do in well, the main philosophy in parenthood that you need to take with you is that don't listen to what other people have to say. You need to do what's right for you and your child. That's what you need to do. But, you know, what, what works for one family does not work for another. What worked for you perhaps the first with your first child may not work for the second child. And you just got to play it by ear and do what's right with your gut and follow your instinct and do what's right for you. So, yeah, in a sense, I thought I, I felt like I failed and that was part of my, I think, um, my depression. I was like, I'm such a horrible person. I can't even feed my child properly. But once I saw all the benefits that he was experiencing, I, I became a little bit happier as well. 
was like, okay, no, we're good. We're all good. <laughs> and that was my first lesson and do what's right for you and your child. Okay. So kind of taking advice from people and keeping what works for you and just kind of leaving the rest behind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you become a parent, everyone has their own story and uh, own bits of advice for you and do this and do that and don't do that. And if you do this, it'll cause him to be like this when he's older and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you just have to do, let pick what's right for you, leave the rest behind. Mega, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? What was the last uncomfortable thing I did? It's, do you mean in terms of being a parent? Just or? in general, in terms of life. Um. Okay, well, <laughs> I did a pa- my first ever powerlifting comp in June this year, which was really, really uncomfortable to prepare for and enter into. But I thought, no, I just want to get out of my comfort zone and do something different and <sighs> – it was literally the best day ever. It was so much fun and everyone was so supportive. So basically powerlifting competitions, you do a, a 1RM squat, a 1RM bench press and a 1RM deadlift and you have three attempts at each and you just rotate around doing each attempt. And, yeah, it was just so much fun. Everyone was so supportive. Everyone was cheering each other on, even though everyone's competing against each other. I mean, I wasn't really there to get first place. I was just there for fun. But, um, yeah, that was my last uncomfortable thing I did, which turned into be, turned out to be such a cool day. Awesome. And I think, yeah, often when we're really worried about things and, and pushed into that discomfort, yeah. things turn out really well and we have a, have a great time or achieve some things that we didn't expect that we were going to yeah i think next year i'm going to start some olympic lifting okay cool is that the next (laughs) uncomfortable thing that you're going to be doing or have you got something before then no that's my next uncomfortable thing i'm going to do attempt um because i don't feel like i am my body is strong enough or stable enough for, or has the control required for Olympic lifting, but I'm going to get there. I'm going to do it. Cool. That sounds sounds wicked. Yeah. We might have to have you back and do a podcast about Olympic lifting as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Awesome. <laughs> once I've once I've had a, a few months under my belt. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of bit of training in it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Mega, I've got one more question for you, but yeah. before I ask it, I just want to say thank you very much for, for spending time with me today and educating me and hopefully educating a few of our listeners as well about what postnatal depression is, um, the fact that it's it's something that is pretty common. It, it's not, if you have it, it's, it's not something that is unusual it doesn't make you a bad person or a bad mother or a bad parent yeah Um, and actually having a conversation around it and getting it out there so that more people do understand it and talk about it so thank you for that that's my pleasure I guess there are a lot of um, mummy bloggers out there at the moment now who are also talking about it which I think is starting to make more and more people aware of it so yeah it's it's good 
I mean, not the depression, but good that people are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, Mega, before we finish up, do you yeah. have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave me and the listener with? Well, okay. I just read this book recently called, and this is very health professional specific. I'm just going to put it out there. But I read this book called When Breath Becomes Air. So it was about um, a man who was a, like a hotshot neurosurgeon. He was a hotshot neurosurgeon. He was like in the prime of his career. And then he gets diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And he suddenly went from being the doctor to the patient. And some of the insights I gained from that book we're really about, we don't understand as health professionals how much we put our patients through and we really need to step back and take a minute to go, hold on, this person has just been through so much. We really need to have a bit more empathy. And I know we do always try and strive to be empathetic people towards our patients, but sometimes we can, you know, when you're busy and you've got like, eight rehab patients to see in a day and, you know, you're running, you're off your feet and stuff. You just kind of need to take a step back and go, hold on, wait, this person's had two lung transplants. She's been in hospital for a year. There's a reason why she's the way that she is. She's crying in pain every day. That was my big lesson that I learned recently, which I'm grateful for because, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's a good reminder as a health professional. Cool. And I think, again, it ties back into your your mindfulness message before, but also that we don't know what other people are going through. So giving them a bit of empathy and a bit of space uh, if they need it is is ideal. Thank you very much for that, Mega. It's been great to have a chat with you today. It's been great chatting to you, Dizzo. 